0: the sacrifice that he made to bring us to you. God, we thank you that he is our redeemer and our rock, and we pray that you'd meet with us this morning, that your spirit would just flood us as we hear your word. I pray you'd be with Pastor Craig as he brings the message that you've laid on his heart and open our eyes and ears to hear what it is you have for us this morning that will draw us closer to you. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning again and welcome My name is Craig Thompson, and I'm the senior pastor here, and we are thrilled to death to have you with us this morning as we've gathered together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14. We will be in Mark for a few few months, actually. If you are new to our church or maybe new to Jesus... Mark is in the New Testament, it's the second book in the New Testament, so your Bible's kind of divided in half, you've got an Old Testament and a New Testament, and there at the beginning of the New Testament you have Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and then John, those four books are known as the Gospels, they give us sort of a biographical account of Jesus' life. Hopefully by now you've had time to get there, which is kind of funny because I didn't get there. Alright, stand with me if you would in honor of God's Word. Beginning in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare, um, prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, or it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the incredible love of Jesus today. Father, even as we observe and focus upon the deception and the betrayal of Judas, God, may we never overlook the miraculous power of Jesus to love in that place. Lord, help us to have a heart and a mind like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we are going to focus primarily on Jesus' love for his enemies. We're going to skip through a whole lot of the information in here related to the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that primarily because next Sunday, and I want to give you some advance notice, next Sunday we will observe the Lord's Supper in our worship service. Our our elementary school kids are going to stay in with us next Sunday. I'm going to preach all through the Lord's Supper. The whole service is going to be built around the the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning. And so today we're, we're going to really not do a whole lot related to all the steps in this. I don't want you to... Walk away uh, feeling like we had neglected all of those things. That will be a part of what we do next Sunday as we look at Mark chapter 14 verses 22 and following. Instead today, what we're going to focus on is this incredible love of Jesus towards the very man who would betray him to death. You know, it's relatively easy to love people and things who are lovable. I brought a picture. Can we get it up there real quick? Look at that. Isn't that cute? I mean, you can't help but love a puppy. I, I show Angela these pictures a lot because I want a new puppy and I just send them to her. I'll just text them over and she just, uh, but she doesn't ever get me a new puppy. But if you want to, listen, I wouldn't mind having one just identical to that if anybody wants to get me one. But isn't that, isn't that easy to look at that face? Who couldn't love that face? If you don't love that face, there's something wrong with you. I mean, let's just be honest. These are easy things to love puppies, babies, donuts. We all can love. All of those things. Nobody has a whole lot of trouble. That's good, thank you. Nobody has a whole lot of trouble with that. All of these things are lovable in their own way, and they're cute. And most of us, most of us don't have too much trouble even loving our families, or at least most of our families, right? We love our kids, and we love our spouses, but the love of enemy, that that is a different thing altogether. You know, even the ugliest puppy is... Cute enough to love for just a minute, but our enemies, how can we even fix our mouths to contemplate such a thing? And yet, here is Jesus turning the world upside down one more time. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Jesus instructed His disciples, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see, loving our families and our puppies, that comes naturally. But loving our enemies is contrary to nearly everything that our flesh wants to do. Love for neighbors is hard enough, isn't it? Just for that random person living across the street from you or down the street from you or that random person that you run into in the grocery store, that's challenging enough. But love for enemies, now that seems almost like a superpower. And yet, it's a command of Jesus. You know, in a in a in our deacons' meeting this past Sunday, one of our de- or this past Monday, one of one of our deacons um, shared the devotion. And a part of that devotion, he talked about the, the, what what is godly biblical leadership. What does it look like? And he asked the question, "How do you know if you're a leader?" And lots of things got thrown around. Um, Uh, My my favorite definition of a leader is turn around. Is anybody following you? If nobody's following you, you might feel like a leader, but you're not, okay? Just keep that in mind. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. But just be aware. If you think you're a leader and nobody's behind you, there's not. But the the second thing that came up over and over and over again in that conversation was, was a leader is somebody who's willing to do the things that they're asking you to do. They, they, they're willing, whatever it is they're asking you to do, they're not too good to do those things, to get their hands dirty in, in those activities. And Jesus is just that kind of a leader. In the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us these incredibly challenging expectations for what it looks like to be a part of his kingdom. But then, on the night that he was going to be betrayed, on the very last meal that he would eat with his disciples, we see that Jesus personifies and exemplifies and lives out every aspect of that command that He gave to His followers to love their enemies. Jesus knew full well that Judas had betrayed Him already to the chief priests, that Judas would finalize that betrayal in just a little while, and yet Jesus still shared a meal with Judas do you love like Jesus? How can we even approach the effort of loving like Jesus? The first thing we see this morning is that if we're going to love like Jesus, if we're going to be able to love our enemies, then we've got to love through a Christian worldview. Now it's been a little while since we've spoken specifically of a Christian worldview, but this morning I want you to understand that you can't love well, or at least not love from a Christian perspective through a naturalistic atheistic worldview if you have no belief in a higher power in a God who has created all of this world and who will one day call the world to an account you can't you can't fathom a reason why you should love anything more than yourself and the things that have particular uh, use for your life now just consider if you think I'm crazy consider These words from one of the 20th century's most famous atheists, Sigmund Freud, um, uh, psychoanalyst and founder of modern psychiatry. He said this. He said, why should we do it? What good will it do to us? But above all, how shall we achieve it? How can it be possible? My love is something valuable to me, which I ought not to throw away without reflection. If I love someone, he must deserve it in some way he deserves it if he is so like me in important ways that I can love myself in him and he deserves it if he is so much more perfect than myself that I can love my ideal of my own self in him but if he is a stranger to me and if he cannot attract me by any worth of his own or any significance that he may already have acquired for my emotional life it will be hard for me to love him Indeed, I should be wrong to do so, for my love is valued by all my own people as a sign of my preferring them, and is an injustice to them if I put a stranger on a par with them. Boy, he sounds like a fun guy, doesn't he? It should come as no surprise that Sigmund Freud struggled to maintain long friendships throughout his life, because he cut people off just like that. The minute that he didn't appreciate where they were going or what they were doing, Sigmund Freud just pushed them out of his life. Because Sigmund Freud was ultimately concerned about one thing and one thing only, and that was Sigmund Freud. Because you've got to give the man credit for this. He died still hating the idea that God could exist. Okay? Um, Sigmund Freud died still breathing out hatred toward the Lord. It was interesting for a man who claimed to not believe in, in God that Sigmund Freud still held such vitriol about this God in whom he supposedly did not believe. But. But you've got to give him credit in that Sigmund Freud perfectly lived out his naturalistic, atheistic, Darwinistic, evolutionary worldview. Sigmund Freud said, survival of the fittest is what matters, and I'm here in this world for me. And if you don't help me, then I've got no use for you. Folks, we've got to have a reason to love our enemies. You understand that? It doesn't come natural. But as followers of Jesus and as believers in a God who has created all of this, we can find a reason to love our enemies. In addition to the fact that Jesus has commanded it, we can find a reason to love our enemies when we develop a proper and appropriate understanding of this Latin word that we call the imago Dei. It's a Latin term that means the image of God. You see, the Bible says that everybody has been created in the image of God. Every single human being. If it breathes and it wears human flesh, it was created in God's image. Him or her, he or she, it was created in God's image. Image, And if we believe that God's word says that all human beings are created in the image of God, then we begin to understand and to believe that even our greatest enemy is an image bearer of the king and is worthy of love, care, and respect. Folks, this is one way that we, get, we begin to get to a place where we might love our enemies is to understand that even the most sinfully depraved human being on the face of God's green earth was created as an image-bearer of God. And there but for grace, there go we. Do we understand that? We begin to be able to love our enemies when we begin to understand that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We begin to be able to love our enemies when we understand that those people that we hold such vitriol for are just like we are. They wear the same flesh that we do. They speak the same words that we speak. And they have the same creator that we have and they have the same hope that we have. The only hope we have is in the blood of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? Everybody was created in the image of God. When I choose to not love somebody, it's not as though I'm choosing to not love a rock or a tree. I'm choosing to not love someone who was created in God's image. This is somebody that in some way, as twisted and distorted and perverted as it may be, in some way continues to bear a resemblance to our God. Folks, this is why Christians throughout the centuries have developed just war theory. You know what just war theory is? Some of you military guys know what just war theory is. Military ladies as well. I'm sorry. All of you men and women who served. Uh, maybe, but, but, but some of the rest of you might not have ever wrestled with that. But just war theory is the idea that, that when we approach warfare, that our warfare should only be basically... Uh, on the same level as is necessary to accomplish our purposes. And if, we're, if there's a retaliatory effect, then it should only be a retaliation to the degree that, that we, were, we were injured or we were harmed, that we were attacked against. In other words, if somebody, if somebody um, you know, throws a couple of hand grenades off of a, uh, a ship and they hit the, the Charleston Harbor today, we don't then go, go blow up a country because somebody threw two hand grenades out of a a, a, a foreign ship. You understand? That's the idea. Just war theory finds its its basis not in atheistic liberalism contrary to what some might have you to believe. It finds its generation or its genesis, its beginnings in Augustine. St. Augustine, that that, that pastor from, from North Africa who began to wrestle with these ideas. Because why? Because he understood that all of the people that live were image bearers of God. And that we bear a responsibility in the way that we treat them even when they are our enemies. This is why Christian peoples have always respected even the corpses of those enemies that have been killed in battle. Because that is an image bearer of God. That's why as Christian believers we should always respond with horror when we observe anything that would be the desecration of bodies, of, of corpses, because we hold them as valuable. Because regardless of what decisions they may have made in life, they are still image bearers of God. How do we begin to love like Jesus? Folks, we've got to develop a robust Christian worldview that helps us to understand that the world in which we live was created and is inhabited by the Spirit of God. That these human beings that we interact with are not just things, they are actual people. And these are people that are deserving of our love and care and respect because of who they are and who they were created by and in whose image they were created. Not because of anything they've done. You understand? Judas received Christ's love because he was an image bearer of God because he was a friend of Jesus, man, that's wild to believe, isn't it? Love through a Christian worldview, and work to have a specific and explicitly Christian worldview. We got a battle for that, don't we? When that person cheats us, when that person steals from us, when that person does 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 wrong by us, we as believers have got to work diligently. To hold to that Christian world view. That we would respect even a criminal because they are an image bearer of God. Folks, we as believers in Jesus Christ have got to stand firmly for the value of all human life. Of course, that means from the womb to the tomb. We believe in the absolute value of all human life. But it also means, understand this, that we hold value in every other human life regardless of where they've been or what they've done. And we do so with a full understanding that God loved us in spite of who we are. Love through a Christian worldview. Secondly this morning, love wildly. Well, you can love wildly too. Um, Love widely, broadly, expansively. It's a bit crazy to believe that you can love in a narrow way and then find to love your enemies. You understand? That would be the most ridiculous thing. i got three people I love on the planet, but then that guy that stole my car last week, I'm going to love him too. No, you're not you're not it's not gonna happen because if you have this narrow view of love then when somebody out does something to harm you then what's gonna happen you're not gonna love them you're gonna hate them with an incredible hatred love is not a commodity for you to spend up and lose it's appropriate for love to be sort of this backwards kind of idea now why is it appropriate It's appropriate because love isn't um, uh, let me back up it's appropriate because just like we said earlier, this is the way that God's economy works. The more you give, the more you get when it comes to love. This is why when you have a second kid, your first child doesn't receive less love from you. How many of you, many of you have more than one child? Raise your hand. If you are a child, just trust me on this. Now, tell me if any of you... Now, maybe I'm just weird and dumb, but tell me if any of you had this experience. <coughs> you had your first kid, right? And that kid drives you crazy for a year or two years or whatever. And then somewhere along the way you begin to get crazy and you go, oh. Like you move past some of the the sleepless nights, you go, we should do this again. We should have another one of these things, right? And so you decide you're going to have another one and, you know, nine months later, here comes an Aubrey or whatever you had. But how many of you before your second child was born had at least a moment of fear? How how am I going to love this child The way that I love the one I already have. Any of you have that? Was it just me? Please, somebody raise your hand. Thank you. Because for a minute, y'all sort of hesitated. I thought I was sort of the only weirdo. But but you do. You begin to worry. We know worrying is a sin, but you still do it. Because we don't trust in God's goodness as we should. And you begin to have this fear. Well, I love this kid so much. What am I going to do? I mean, is it fair? (laughs) How many of you ever had this conversation? Is it... Is it fair for us to have another child? This is the most ridiculous thing that I hear. Right? I, I, and I, I thought it, but then when you hear somebody else say it, you want to go and, and, and just sound, slap some sense into them, you know? What are you doing? Can I, is it fair? Well, what, what does God do? When that other child comes along, you don't magically go, Oh, well, here's half of my love to you and half of my love to you. No, what the Lord does is He doubles your love. Actually, He does something better than that, doesn't He? Because it's like your love grows exponentially. All of a sudden, you find out that when that second child came along, you actually loved that child as much as you loved the other child. But then you begin to think, you go, well, well, maybe I, I kind of love them both even more than I loved this one before he got there. And then you find you begin to love your spouse even more. Well, men do. Ladies, I don't know what y'all do. Probably for a little while, y'all are hating us because that baby came and ruined your life. But after that, you begin to find a way to really just love. Well, then... Listen. If you get real crazy, you get another couple of kids. and You bring them into the mix, and you begin to have those same sort of fears and doubts. And you go, "Well, what, what, what if we bring them in?" This is this is the conversation that Craig can have. Okay, not, not now y'all judge me, and that's all right. But you go, "Well, what if we bring them in? And what if, when we do, all of a sudden there's not enough love to go around? And what about the other kids?" And blah. And the Lord says, "If you lost your mind, bring them on in." What does God do? He just explodes the love. Turns out that the more people that you bring into your family, and the more that you begin to give away love around you, this is so much better than the gifts that Oprah ever gives out, isn't it? Right? It's not a new car or a new crock pot. You get some more love, and you get some more love, and the next thing you know, everybody's got love all over. That's what happens in God's economy. It's the only time I've ever quoted Oprah in a positive sense in a sermon, by the way. If you want to know about Oprah, I can send you a paper I wrote one time. But anyway, um, so but, but, but y'all, this shouldn't surprise us, should it? The Bible says in John 4, 7 that God is love. Now, that, that he didn't, the Bible doesn't say that love is God. Now, I don't want to give this away to you too much because when we finish in Mark, we're going to jump into 1 John and we're going to basically work through 1 John through the summer months, the, the, the end of the spring and the summer. So I don't want to get, I'm excited about the sermon we'll preach on 1 John, but I, 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 I got to hold back. But let me just give you a little taste right here. When the Bible says that God is love, that doesn't mean that love is God. Everything that I love, I don't get to say is necessarily godly because I feel like I love it. Sometimes my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and nobody can understand it. And I know that from human experience, but of course I also know it to be infallibly true because God's Word teaches me that. i got to be careful that just because I feel a sense of love towards something that I don't attach to it a degree of godliness. This is where it's appropriate for us to understand. Some other languages did a better job or do a better job of explaining love than our language does. In English, we love everything. So we love the puppy. We love donuts. I mean, I really love donuts. I love my wife. But when you think about it, it's sort of devaluing to Angela. When I said, Boy, I love donuts. Man, I really love Angela. Well, which one would you choose? Please don't make me choose when I'm hungry, you know? (laughs) Well, of course, that's ridiculous. But some other languages, the Greek language does a good job of helping us to understand. So the Greek language establishes different words for love. So the kind of love that I would have for Angela and the kind of love you would have for your spouse is a progressive kind of love. So you would begin, perhaps, with what we would say is an eros kind of love. And that's not always necessarily erotic in the sexual kind of sense. It's just sort of a guttural, emotional kind of love, right? It's that puppy dog experience of love. And then you, you work through the process of love. And if, and if you're doing it, if you're, if you're loving well, then, then it moves even to that philos kind of love, perhaps a friendship that's there. But the goal in marriage is that more mature kind of love, that agape love that says, I love you, period, full stop. End of conversation. There's no need to explain it because my love for you is is conclusive. It's broad, right? I love completely. So they're different in varying degrees of the way that we love. The Greek. That's those are the words that are used in the New Testament. The Greek even has another word for love, which is is a pretty cool love. Pretty cool. Pretty cool word. Kevin and I were talking about this uh, one day this week, weren't we? and and that Greek word storge is, is this idea of an affection. Okay, it's 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 maybe the love that you would have for, for 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 somebody else's kid that you don't know well, or for somebody that you just meet in passing in the store, something like that. There's a, there's a certain sort of, of camaraderie that comes along with that. Now all those different kinds of love help us to understand something. God is love, but love isn't God. So when we think about that that progressive nature of love, there may come a time in your life where there is sort of an emotional, guttural love for a thing or a person that is not a godly kind of love. You understand? I might experience an emotional draw or desire or attachment to a person or a thing, but just because I love it or think I love it, doesn't necessarily mean that it is godly. It's important for us to keep that in mind. So how do I clarify that? What do I mean? That means that because I love my wife, not in the same way that I love donuts, but because I love my wife. See, I love donuts too. But if I decide today I don't like donuts, and I decide that I'm going to become a a pastry guy, there's nothing wrong in the world Well, I mean, I guess for my heart health, there's a lot wrong with that, but I mean... You know, there's nothing in the world wrong with that, but 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 in, in the kind of love, that agape love that I have for my wife. Just because somebody else approaches and I may feel that electric charge of emotional attachment doesn't mean that in that moment I go, well, God has certainly sent me in a different direction. You see? Now, in some languages, and maybe even in the Greek language, that, that emotion, that emotion, C.S. Lewis goes, goes on to say that you may love somebody that you're not married to, but it's not an acceptable kind of love, and you've got to move away from that, back to that agape-centered kind of love, right? Now, we, that doesn't work well in the English language because we go, well, if you love me, you wouldn't love that person. But when you've got multiple words for what we call love, you can do that. So God is love, but love isn't God. Where are we going with all that? We've got to love widely. Now that doesn't mean that we that we practice an ungodly form of love, right? And it doesn't mean that every time I feel loving towards something that it's necessarily God's will and God's direction. We got to be careful with that. But even still, I want you to understand that if we are ever going to have any hope of loving our enemies, we've got to love very broadly. Very widely. If we seek to grow in godliness, we must necessarily grow in love. And it seems to almost always be the case that in God's economy, the more you give away, the more you have. What did Judas love? The Bible says Judas loved money. Judas loved himself. And Judas had no room to love anyone else. But Jesus, weren't those the most powerful words in God's Bible? But Jesus, but God, but Jesus loved broadly. As a matter of fact, we don't, we don't find a scenario in the New Testament. Jesus seems to be loving everybody he comes into contact with, doesn't he? I mean, Jesus is always loving. The Bible says that the rich uh, young ruler came and, and said all these things and, 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 and he went away sorrowful. He walked away from Jesus. He turned his back on Jesus, and yet Jesus loved him. We get this love of Jesus that comes through his word. Folks, if you have any hope of loving your enemies, you must first be loving. If you are a hateful person and unwilling to love others in the name of Christ, you have little hope of loving those who are truly unlovable. Do you want to honor Christ's words to love your enemy? Let me encourage you. Begin by loving your spouse well and loving your children. Loving the members of your life group. Love the people that you work with. Love that person in front of you at Target who is paying in 14 different orders with 78 coupons and 15 gift cards. Theoretically. But it might have happened last night. just occurred to me now that that was God's way of preparing me for this message (laughs) because it just occurred to me that I need to confess that I didn't love that person well I didn't I just thought about it Angela went to the car and left me with this cart full of things that I had to purchase she said I had to buy them if I love my children and so there I stand and I go and she left one of the kids in there with me to annoy me and (laughs) I mean, she, she phrases it in this word, like, they're going to help you. They don't help me. But I just remember, like, I, I'm, I'm going to relive this whole thing for you. So I roll up in there, first of all. I'd already started checking out one time and realized that we had, we had the wrong thing in the cart, and I had to leave. So I, I had to, oh, I'm sorry, please cancel my order, and I push everything back in the cart. Now, then I, I, I leave. Well, I, I, there was no line. So I go back and I get what we need and I come back up and all of a sudden we went from no line to every human being in Columbia being in line at Target. And I have an uncanny ability to do what I'm about to tell you that I do. I take my cart in the grocery store or at any other place. It can be at Lowe's, it could be at Tractor Supply, it could be in California. I push my shopping cart up there, and I'm always scanning for the shortest line. And I find it, and I push my cart into the shortest line. And inevitably, the shortest line is the longest one. I never understand how it works. This happened to me at the grocery store the other day. I got in the shortest line I could find, and I literally watched a line with six people, and the person in the back finished before I did with one person in front of me. And so last night, I wheeled my cart up at Target. There's finally a line. There wasn't one. I wheeled my cart up. Man, I, I feel pretty embarrassed about this now. So I wheel my card up, and there's this lady that's paying. I don't know what she was doing. I, I really, I mean, I'm kidding. I kid you not. There were all these different orders that she was doing. She was probably been watching one of those coupon shows on TLC. And, and she had all these things spread out. And then the, the, the poor girl who's trying to check her out, she's scanning it. And she goes, whoa, 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 what about this? And the girl's going, I have no idea. And it just kept dragging on. And y'all, here's what I did. I didn't go, boy, look at that sweet lady. Let me just give her a hug. I was so frustrated. Why? Because in my mind, what did I think? I thought, I'm way more valuable and important than that person. Isn't that that what keeps us from loving others well? That I love me so much that I can't love somebody else. We got to be careful, don't we? Love others. All right, love widely. Thirdly, love when it hurts. you got to be willing to love when it hurts. Jesus loved Judas. Don't miss that. He loved him. Jesus continued to love Judas on the night that he would betray him. Jesus loved Judas enough to eat dinner with him. Jesus' love of Judas was not an approval of Judas. It's important. Your love of others is not approving of their behaviors or actions. This is really important. Now, teenagers, listen to me. We talked a bit about peer pressure yesterday. That doesn't mean that you should necessarily spend time with all the the, the terrible influences in your life. Bad company still corrupts good character. So you don't get to just say, well, I'm hanging out with all these terrible decision makers because I'm trying to help them be better. Be careful. Be careful. But... Listen, when we love somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean that we approve of the decisions that they make and of the actions in their life. I learned this as a kid. When I was a kid, there was a terrible scandal in my little small community. Um, there in one of the churches, the daycare leader and the pastor had an affair with each other. And and, and this is, again, this is a small community. And uh, um, they had an affair with each other. They left the church. They left their spouses and the two of them... Um, a year or so down the road, ended up getting married. The hurt was monumental. That church took ye- matter of fact, the church never did fully recover. The church finally relocated, and on the back end of that relocation, the church found a way to recover from that terrible scandal and split and hurt and division. Um, but I, I still remember the tears in my mama's eyes as she explained to us what had happened. That wasn't our church. But my brother and I had gone to preschool there. We loved these people. These were people that were active in our schools and in our communities. We grew up with their kids. And as she explained to us what happened, she she told of going to that woman who was her friend. And even as a young man, I thought, what in the world are you doing? And, 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 And my mother, she said, I needed to tell her that I still loved her. What are we supposed to do? My mom and dad just sat us down and they said what they did is wrong. And we do not approve of what they did. But they are our friends. We still love them. And we're going to find a way forward. Folks, do you love the people that hurt you? Are you willing to love even if it costs you something I- I've had people to say, I'm, I'm a pastor, so people get that there's this reputation I have to have. And I've, I've had people, to, I've literally had people to say to me, I'll understand if you can't spend time with me because you're a pastor. And I know what that would look like for your reputation. And I've had to look at them and say, I'm not worried about my reputation. You need a friend. You need to be loved on. And it matters to me. I can't believe that you've done what you've done, but I'm not walking away. Loving somebody doesn't mean that I approve of their decisions. And, folks, loving somebody means that we open ourselves up to be hurt by the people that we love. It's scary when you have to open yourself up like that. You have to show a certain degree of vulnerability to let people in your life. Just think. About asking someone out on a first date. Do you, do you, can you remember how terrifying that was? Can you still remember how scared it was, scary it was to go to somebody and to expose yourself emotionally to say, I have an interest in you. Would you be willing to spend some time with me? It's terrifying because what if they say no? Then they're going to know. I told Angela just yesterday, she asked if I was, uh, followed somebody on Instagram. I said, I don't. She said, Well, th- why not? I said, Well, they never invited me. She said, well, you could could request to be their friend. I said, I never do that. She said, why not? I said, expose myself that way. Show them that I need them. I can't do it. It's terrifying. She just rolled her eyes and walked away. Folks, you know that opening ourselves up to, to love and be loved is scary, and it can be painful. Are you willing to love when it's painful? Are you willing to love a wayward child? Will you love a difficult boss? Will you love your nosy mother-in-law? Will you love the politician with whom you disagree? Will you continue to love your spouse who has let you down? Judas lo- Jesus loved Judas. Jesus continued to love Judas on the night that he would betray him. And Jesus loved Judas enough. You ready? to eat dinner with him. This was Jesus' party and Judas was still invited. Jesus' love of Judas was not an approval of Judas. But it was a love, nevertheless, Jesus chose to love. Folks, do you love like Jesus? Now, we, we kind of fool ourselves when we go, well, let me just give you a Sloan story. Sloan looked at Angela one day, and he said, I need you to fold this laundry. And Sloan said, but I don't like folding laundry the way you do. I don't know if y'all know this, but nobody likes to fold laundry. Teenagers, listen to me. Your parents don't enjoy folding laundry. That's the reason, they, that's the reason we had kids, so we wouldn't have to fold laundry. <laughs> we... we Again, we sort of disney the Bible and we go, well, Jesus really felt like loving on Judas because he wanted. Does anybody believe that Jesus looked in the face of Judas and said, now this is a guy that I want to hang out with? No! Jesus didn't love Judas because he deserved it. Jesus didn't love Judas because Jesus wanted to because he was looking forward to what Judas was going to do. Jesus loved Judas because Jesus decided to love Judas. Folks, when we choose to love like Jesus, a lot of our loving acts are going to not feel like things that we want to do. They're going to be things that we choose to do. Because it is the right and godly thing, not because it's comfortable. So I ask you, will you love like Jesus? Jesus loved because God is love and because Judas was created in God's image. Jesus loved Judas because Jesus loved everyone. Jesus loved Judas because Jesus was willing to love when it hurt and Jesus chose to hurt. Will you love like Jesus? Get this. Jesus has chosen to love you too. you know how easy it is for us to say, but I'm so much better than they. All the disciples looked at Jesus when he said, one of you is going to betray me. And and, and they all wondered, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? All of them wanted to make sure that they weren't the ones that were wrong. But every one of them left as soon as Jesus was arrested. Do you understand? In reality, they all betrayed Jesus. And we've all betrayed Jesus, and you've betrayed Jesus, and yet Jesus loves you too. So this morning, the invitation is simple. Will you let Jesus love you? Will you believe that God could love you? Do you know that? Do you know that God's not finished with you? If you're here today and you've never experienced the love of Jesus in salvation, if you've never had a personal relationship with Jesus, I would invite you to come today and experience the love of Jesus firsthand. That's the first thing. The second thing this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus today, would you be willing to do whatever it takes to begin to love like Jesus? Would you begin to see others not as objects of scorn and ridicule, but as image bearers of God, deserving of your love because of who their God is and who created them? Would you begin to love widely? Would you be willing to give your love away to people not because you thought they were deserving of it. Would you be willing to give your love away to people because God is love and has called us to love as He does? Would you be willing to love even when it hurts? Would you be willing to go and share love with those people who may never love you back appropriately? Would you be willing to love the people who will hurt you? Would you be willing to love the people who have hurt you? Oh, there's opportunities out there for you to love like Jesus. This morning, I'm going to ask if you commit to loving like Jesus. Maybe right there in your seat. Perhaps some of you should come up here. Maybe some of you recognize as we preach this morning, there's no way you can love like Jesus because you carry around so many grudges, so much anger and frustration toward the people in your life. The idea of loving your enemies... When I said enemy, for some of you there was a face that came right into your mind and you said there's no way. And today you need to come and you need to lay down that grudge and lay down that burden. You need to come and you need to pray and say, Lord God, I don't know how, but I know that I've got to find a way to move on. I've got to give up this anger and this hatred, Lord God. I've allowed this person to hold me captive with my sin and my anger. And Lord God, I come to you today and I give it to you. This morning, however it is that Lord may be working in your life, as we stand in just a moment and sing, would you respond and allow God to love you? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your love towards us. Thank you for the example of love that we've been shown in Jesus and for the ability you've given us to love through the cross and the empty tomb. Lord God, as we sing this morning, would we. Lord God, would we sing in such a way? So Father God, we invite your presence among us. Lord God, would you be at work among us? Lord God, would you draw us to yourself? Lord God, would you change our hearts? Give us hearts like yours, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please?